What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs. This is your hobby content alternative. I'm your host, Brett McGrath. I collect sports cards, and I have a podcast about collecting sports cards. And every Friday, each and every Friday here, we bring on a collector to talk about, you got it, sports cards. And we have been going and going and going with this parallel series, and it's not stopping. We're going again, and I can feel it. I can hear it. All of you out there have said, okay, there's a few of these under in the can so far. Where's the one about precious metal gems? Where is the PMG episode? I have the PMGs on my Mount Rushmore of parallels, and I have the PMG on my Mount Rushmore of parallels in the George Washington spot, and Brett thinks he collects sports cars, and he hasn't had a episode yet on the PMGs. What is he doing? This is a disgrace and a disservice to the parallels that keep our hobby moving. I've heard it. I can hear it now, but hopefully you give me a pass because I've been waiting until this very moment. I have my man, Zan, Zanu23 Sports Cards on the Instagram machine on today's episode to talk about precious metal gems. The reason why I wanted Zan to be the person or the collector, if you will, to talk about PMGs is because he is putting out a lot of great content around PMGs that are being faked, that are being sold on other platforms. So we get to that, but first we pay reverence, honor, and respect to the precious metal gems parallel that captivate the hearts and minds of the collecting community. If you like what I'm doing over here, you can follow, you can subscribe, you can hit all the buttons. Most importantly, tell a damn friend that you're enjoying the Stacking Slabs podcast. You ready? PMG time. Let's kick it to the conversation. All right, so we are unlocking a brand new character, longtime Instagram pal and someone who I uh, appreciate following. Um, we are going to be talking about PMGs today in the Parallel Series, but I am joined by Zan, Zano23 Sports Card on the Instagram machine. Um, but without further ado, Zan, welcome. How are you, man? Thank you, sir, for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm very, very thrilled to be on. Uh, I think I started listening to your show probably about a year and a half ago when around the time of my departure from ultra modern, <laughs> it sort of coincided with listening to people on your show, talk about what they actually like collecting. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited to be on and talk about that stuff. Well, I'm not sure I knew you when you were in the world of ultra modern, because I view you as kind of just like an overall nineties collector. So maybe we start there before the PMGs talk about that evolution of where you were to where you are now and who you collect, because I, I scroll your page and it's full of just awesome parallels of maybe not the top tier nineties people like MJ and, you know uh, you know, Brady that everyone collects, but you, you've got a pretty fun PC that you revolve your time and interest around. For sure. And uh, part of it was spurred when I I was a a kid in the nineties collecting, like a lot of people were putting together, uh, base sets of Metal Universe, uh, the EX stuff, 2000, 2001, Ultra. You know, that that stuff at the time was less than $5 a pack and boxes were pretty cheap. So you could buy them, multiple boxes, put together a base set. And it really wasn't uh, particularly demanding financially. And, you know, you, you didn't really get to pull much of the serial numbered stuff. So as as with most people, I went to high school and college and 
grad school and then came back a few years ago. And, you know, I think anytime you come back into any hobby and, and cards in particular, you kind of want what's new and an injection of sort of the latest, hottest thing. And at that time, it was 2020 Prism and 2020 Select and all that stuff and Burrow and Herbert and Tua and all those guys. And so it's, it's when you don't know any better, um, and your show's talked about this a lot, you listen to the biggest influencers, whether that's via YouTube, via Instagram, or any other platform. And most of that discussion revolves around buying a card and then selling it three weeks later for twice the price. And so you think that that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and then it wasn't, I guess, when I started listening to your show um, and started changing my Instagram habits, who I was following, you know, who was following me, et cetera, I really started to see the community out there surrounding 90s. And it just triggered this huge wave of nostalgia for a lot of these cards that I, you know, still have binders of, but maybe on a more exclusive scale with the serial numberings, the parallels, the rare inserts, et cetera. So for the last year plus, that's been the my predominant focus. Um, and so my main focus for football is the 90s Patriots team sets, which has been a labor of love because it's a lot of cars and they don't pop up too often. Um, Corey Dillon, Brett Favre, and then for baseball, uh, Jeff Bagwell, Vlad Guerrero Sr., uh, Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, just kind of here and there. And that was something I started earlier this year. So um, I'm I'm leery of the fact that maybe I have too many PCs. I don't know. Uh, I guess time will tell. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of like the, the short and sweet of how I really came back into the 90s. Having maybe a little, a few different uh, pockets of, you've got two sports in there. You've got, you know, a team. You've got players. Do you feel like, uh, by it's not like a super wide net by by having like a little bit of a net around some different groups you have an opportunity to maybe dig into 90 specifically dig into like a lot of different types of years sets and parallels and it maybe makes you maybe more educated th than you would be if you're just collecting one player yes absolutely i mean i now you you've this is your fault. You've coined the term dopamine hits now. So <laughs> it's in the zeitgeist. You can't, you can't avoid it. So uh, it's, but you know, for some of these like cheaper, like Corey Dillon is not a particularly, a guy whose prices are very high. Same with a lot of the Patriots. So you can get smaller cards for 50 bucks, hundred bucks and get, keep those mail days coming. Um, but yeah, for sure. Like I, I started out with just the football stuff. Um, and I realized there was some, sets that i missed in baseball that you know i used to collect one of my favorite inserts is only in baseball and basketball so kind of moving over to baseball really opened up uh the field and allowed me to like experiment in, in more areas so uh we're gonna i promise we're gonna get into the pmgs of it all here but uh curious on your end are you the only individual in the hobby who collects the new england patriots pre Tom Brady, because I feel like you might be able to start your own little niche uh, community around that. Yeah. There's one other guy, um, Sean, who's been collecting for a long time, San Antonio Spurs zero two one, I believe is his username. He's got a lot of, uh, the same parallels. I do a lot of them are, um, and he has some, I need, he won't give them up, but yes, that is true. Like 
nothing against Brady collectors. Obviously, they've made some pretty savvy financial decisions, but with 20 years of cards and 30 products a year, it's overwhelming to me. There's like that paradox of choice where I wouldn't even know where to begin if I were to start collecting Tom Brady. And plus, I like to, you know, zag when everyone's zigging. So it's a little bit different and it makes those... Plus, the 90s jerseys are just so much sweeter than any of the 2000s. I'm like you, I'm kind of a jersey sucker. Like, I love the 90s jerseys. So that's kind of an impetus for focusing on on 90s Patriots. All right, let's jump into PMGs. So this is a top... I know this... My, like, selection process for who I want to talk about certain parallels, it's not... It's it's kind of off the cuff, but I wanted to reach out to you on that because I think we're going to hit this on the end, but, like, you have been someone who has been posting about some of the... Um, green PMGs that have been selling that might have come from someone just cutting sheets and putting a serial uh, stamp on the back. And I think, I don't know, like to me, it was like, let's talk about PMGs. Let's talk about its significance, but then also like, let's spend some time in this episode to talk about just like awareness we can build. So people aren't wasting a bunch of money on buying something they think is, uh, you know, an authentic card but is actually comes from an uncut sheet so that was like part of the inspiration of why i wanted you to be on to talk about pmgs but maybe let's just start with pmgs in general i would say like i like felt when i was doing this series like it was almost like i felt like this from the hobby it was like okay he's doing a series on parallels like like pmgs has to be leading this off which i intentionally chose not to but i knew it was going to be something that we had to talk about so maybe like i don't know pmgs Topic. Yeah, overview. Like yeah. maybe talk a little bit about yeah. just like PMGs in general, like okay. years and just anything you want to touch on. Sure. Well, yeah, to, to start, I'm flattered that you asked me. There's a lot of guys out there who've been doing this a lot longer than I have that have a lot more knowledge. So I'm sure they'll be flooding my DMs if I say something incorrect. But <laughs> um, so PMGs, yeah, I guess it's easier to go back to sort of the beginning. Marvel actually bought Fleer in 92. They later bought Skybox in like, I think, 90. Five-ish, something like that. And so 96, Fleer put out their first metal products in baseball, basketball, and football. Football and basketball, it was called metal. Baseball was called metal universe. There was no numbered parallels at that point. You had uh, precious metal was a parallel in basketball and football, and then platinum parallel in baseball. None of those were numbered. The designs are a little more primitive, maybe less creative than the following years, but you can kind of see the, the seeds of ingenuity sprouting there. And then you move into 97, um, which actually had two sets for basketball. It had the Metal Universe and then the Metal Universe Championship. Football, 97, 98, 99. It's easier, I think, rather than refer to the years, just to refer to the scheme, the color scheme, the Mm. design scheme. So everybody, I think, probably, even those that are relatively uninitiated, would know the reds and the greens. And those are only for football and basketball. Um, for 1997. Um, those were basketball number two, 100. The first 10 of that run were green. Uh, and then the, the last 90 were red. For football, the first 15 are green. And then the last 135 are uh, red. And then you move into 98 football, 98 bas- uh, baseball, which is also the championship for basketball. And I call it the scope effect. Like mm. if you collect, you know, like the what the scope effect is, almost looks like the intersecting Venn diagram. Sort of, those have the uh, the cityscapes behind them, um, and are numbered to fifty. 
and then you have the final the final year which is 99 football 99 baseball and 98 99 basketball and those are the gold that have an embossed uh, name at the top the last name of the player and i believe only football has uh if it's a rookie it says rookie at the top i don't think baseball or basketball has those so do you want me to tell you a little bit more about the designs? Uh, of the, uh, I want to get into that, but you said something and I, I don't know, I've never really heard anyone talk about this and I would just like your opinion on this is just the, the serial numbering that you mentioned. Uh, let's talk about just with the reds and greens and the uh, differences in the, the, the print hundred and 150 in football, but like, I don't know, like is, I don't know if this is unique or not, but I have never really thought about it up until this point where it's just like, okay, the greens instead of it being like, 10 out of 10, like parallel, it's just a continuation and a part of the whole uh, precious metal gems run. And it just cuts off. And then the red start, uh, like, what do you, what do you, is that, that to me just seems like unique to a specific parallel, which I think maybe makes them more memorable, but maybe it also makes the whole way it's organized confusing to someone who's not regularly in it. What do you think about just the structure around uh, the reds and the greens and how they're numbered. Well, I think, you know, that was really the infancy of serial numbering. I think the first serial numbered card was 1990, but it was just a picture of the Vince Lombardi trophy. It's numbered to 10,000. So I don't know that a, a really a parallel with that many serial numbered cards had really been put out there. And so I imagine that it was just like, hey, let's do this the easiest way possible and just number them one through 150. I don't know that there was rationale behind it uh, more than just let's make this easier on ourselves. But I mean, it, it is unique because you don't really see that anymore, especially in the ultra modern stuff. Each parallel is numbered. It's not like you have 10,000 cards and like one through 100 mm. blue and et cetera. So it definitely, um, I think, contributes even if in minor part to the legacy of the set. So yeah, let's hop over to the aesthetics. Obviously like the PMGs there, you mentioned the reds and the greens. And then there's this, this, the city shots that are, if you're a modern collector, think of like prism scopes. That's like the technology on the back. And then you've got the golds. Um, I don't know. What do you, what, what, what are you drawn to? What do you like? Like, how would you, how do these stack up and, and rank in your mind? For me, it's the 99, the gold, which I feel like is probably the minority opinion. Um, I know it has its own like avid fan base, but it's, I guess you could say it's like the least iconic, maybe. Um, part of that is spurred on by the fact that even though Jordan and Barry Sanders are in those sets, they're actually considered non-playing years because they didn't play mm -hmm. in 1999. Um, so I like it because kind of intersecting with what you said last week with Josh on the show that the gold, right? We like that. We love that, that kind of parallel, the hall of foils, beautiful. But part of it for me is I like them because they're so distinctive from the base cards, which mm. um, are probably the least creative metal cards. They really are just the background just looks kind of like a steel beam. It doesn't have any really punch to it versus the 97s where the red and green is neat, it's hall foil, but it's obscuring this really intricate design that they had placed behind the player, which was inspired by Marvel, by comic books. So you've got all kinds of really cool graphics and each card, you know, is individualized. Um, and then same with 98, where the scope effect is great. It gives an, an awesome visual appeal in person, but 
in a sense, it's also obscuring these cityscapes behind the players. So like if you look at the 98 base cards, they're just foil. There's no etching, but like it's a very clear image of what is behind the player. And so, you know, the base cards in 97 and 98 are just really ornate and really, really well designed. Um, and so to me, not that the PMG takes away from that, but I, I just the 99, the, the lure of the gold is is too hard to pass up. So I think there's this uh, community around PMGs that continues to grow for so many reasons. Obviously, like we haven't even mentioned the value component, but I would say if you're looking for a card or a parallel that's going to store value, it's likely a PMG is a good choice and option. Um, now, the one thing that stands out to me when I think about PMGs and why I think they're so collectible obviously you've got all the designs you just mentioned but then the 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 roster of players across sports right it just taps into this nostalgia that we have as you know being you know in our 30s and 40s and collect, going back into collecting sports cards why what 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 in your mind it, and it could be a combination of any of those things but i'd love to know like why do you think this this parallel is so highly collected or revered amongst collectors I think you look at um, the collectors who are buying them now because of their price points or not to generalize too much, but probably between 35 and 45, maybe 30 and 50, if you want to expand it, who in the late 90s were in those early teen years, um, maybe in high school or middle school. And at that time, you're coming off the junk wax era with Topps, Donruss, Clearleaf, all you know, those are the big paper cards and they kind of form the constituency of the flagship products. And then you had just had finest and flair showcase select certified. So the more premium sets coming out as well. And metal universe was a set that was really designed for kids. I mean, if you look back at those designs, they fought, they were on the heels of Marvel's comic book trading cards. Um, and so like, that type of, I don't want to call it juvenile, but like it certainly had more appeal for a younger generation. And so for me, and I'm sure for other people like me, we remember, you know, opening metal because it was relatively um, inexpensive. And so I think, you know, if you're looking sort of at criteria, like nostalgia would be number one. Um, and then design innovation has got to be in there because like we were talking about earlier with what's in the background, no one had really seen anything like that. For the in terms of like the conceptualization and the execution, most cards were just pictures of the guys, you know, baseball guys sliding into second or just holding his bat like this, right? They they weren't really particularly innovative. And then you've also got the serial numbering, which is certainly a, a big part of it. And having sort of like that first, like we talked about first year of a lot of stuff. And this isn't necessarily first year serial numbering, but it's, it's pretty damn close. So I, I feel like our age range you know, as you learn more about it, you're like, wow, I, I missed out on these at the time, but here's my chance to kind of get back some of that. So we've talked a, a lot about some of the reasons and uh, contributing factors why I think these cards are so popular. And I, I'd love to dig into maybe like the organic growth of these cards versus maybe like the hype of these cards. And I feel like, you know, when you've got a card like this, that's desirable that's you know limited that's got nostalgic like organic growth is going to drive it but then there's going to be other people on the outside trying to like 
pump these cards up. So maybe it's like a combination of the two. The one thing that I find compelling about these cards is that you actually have like people out there that are trying to like build sets with these, which is really hard. And I think that helps the cause of why some of these cards are like holding their value and continue to go up in value. What do you like, how do you think about like the dichotomy between like, is this growth of PMGs sustainable? Um, is there some of it that's manufactured? Like, what are your observations? Uh, like you said, it's a combination of the two. Organic growth, I think, certainly brought PMGs into the general cultural conscious of the hobby. And, you know, think about it. Like, each year, you're going to add more collectors who want those items, right? And those people who, who wanted them five years ago still want them. So you're just expanding that collector base. Which is which is organic, but you also have there's there's the hype to blame a little bit. You know there are some guys out there, some user power users out there who are buying PMGs, buying rubies, buying credentials because collectors they see that collectors want them, and they're marking them up. And I know more than a few collectors who've said maybe some of these guys will put the tinfoil hats on. Maybe some of them are in cahoots and, and artificially inflating prices. Who knows, right? We, we don't know for sure. There's no confirmation. But it makes some sense as to why we've seen these astronomical increases within a short period of, of time. So there is that hype component. But at the end of the day, people are genuinely uh, interested in these sets because of the things that, that we discussed. Um, and I don't really think it's any worse than it's probably frankly better than ultra modern where flippers seem to thrive the most because it's hot potato with guys whose performance is fluctuating versus established um, players. And so, you know, I can speak for myself and a lot of other collectors who came back in in the last several years. We all, you know, kind of started in that ultra modern place because of influencers or the desire to get the new product or to collect guys on current teams rosters. But then it's sort of like year two or year three into your collecting journey, just as you would in your career, you really like start to settle in and figure out what it is you want and what it is that actually appeals to you. I love that perspective. Um, so maybe when uh, I remember you sent me a DM when I put my uh, Marvin up for auction and mm -hmm. It was one of those things where it was like, I had this card for over two years. Like, I love Marvin Harrison, but, you know, you, you've got your your tiers of, like, collections. And I needed to get some more funds to go and pay for something else I was buying. So it was like that moment where I was on the chopping block. And when I made that decision, after when I first bought that card, I was like, man, this is a card I probably never sell. But I ended up selling it. And part of the reason why I sold the card was because there was 140 or 35 copies of this Harrison card out there, they might not all be accessible, but the odds of me being able to get this card back were in my mind high. So I ended up selling it as I was thinking about what I potentially could get for it. So I don't know, like to me, you, you look at like the serial numbering of some of these nineties cards, like PMGs where they're like a hundred, 150. And in today's world, it seems like, if you're buying modern cards, you would never like put a bunch of money in something that's printed that high. But we don't do that when it comes to 90s. And I know there's a huge time frame in between that. But 
I don't know, like, how do you think about that? Cause I knew you, you, you spent a lot of time in nineties cards. Like, is there a big difference from like the print runs today to what existed? And I don't know, there just seems like there could be a lot to dig into on that. So like, how do you think about that? Maybe from a PMG perspective or, or just from a broader nineties parallel perspective? Sure. I mean, I, I think in, in 1997, which is, you know, year one of the PMG. So even though the print runs are higher there than they are in the succeeding two years, it's still year one, which is significant. And additionally, like every set that Panini produces now has a lot of numbered parallels, every single set. And that's not true in 97. I mean, you have you have a handful of sets that have numbered cards. Um but like, you know, you take Ultra and the Platinum Medallions in 97, they, they weren't numbered. They, you know, there was unconfirmed print runs, but still not that many sets that had numbering. And the numbering seemed to be like, it was either like 100 or less, or it was like, you know, 5,000, right? Like some, some, and there wasn't a whole lot of in between. And so we feel more people are becoming aware of them. And so as that happens... I agree with you that you can you could probably get that Marvin back at some point in time, you know, if you wanted to. But I, I as as we add those collectors and the, we compound the collector base, 135 may not seem like that many if mm. they if they start drying up. And we now know all the outcomes of these players' careers. Everyone's retired that was active during that time, and so we feel safe putting four figures, five figures in these cards because. We already know whether these people are Hall of Famers, whether their legacies will persist through time. And, you know, I think Jordan, you have to look at Jordan. I mean, he's he was biggest athlete of the 90s, maybe ever, probably the most recognized of all time. You know, that's his last year with the Bulls, 97, 98. It's coinciding with his sixth championship. It's the it's sort of the passing the baton to Kobe Bryant, you know, and he really has floated that. You got the color match on the red. And he's floated that set. And that's why basketball is so much more expensive. So you look at football, it's it's trailing behind a little bit. Maybe it'll catch up, maybe it won't. But sort of the iconic status of that Jordan will almost have a trickle-down effect to all the other reds and greens in the set because now people say, I want to collect this set. Look how many great players are in it, you know. And so I think it's the numbering aside, you know, um, 100, 100, 130, 50. It's not that many because there are so many people who desire it. I love it when the guests uh, segue into the next topic by bringing up the <laughs> word. But you said you said iconic, and I, I think inevitably when I think about PMGs across all years across all sports, it's really hard not to think about that Michael Jordan card right out of the gates and just the status it has. And then you pair that with the green, which is a true unicorn, like. The best of the best Jordan collectors cannot get access to that card and maybe will never get access to that card. And so uh, I think for the reasons you said, Michael Jordan helps elevate that year in that that parallel set probably over anything maybe ever. So I think about the Jordan and I think it should just be understood that that card is an iconic card in the hobby. Are there any other PMGs that like when you close your eyes and you you think about just PMGs in general stand out to you as an iconic or maybe a potentially iconic card in the hobby? Yeah, for sure. Tier one is red and green, Jordan and Kobe. 
if you look at the uh, the top 12 sales all time, most expensive sales all time for PMGs, it's red and green, Jordans and Kobe's. It's a combination of those four, four cards. So that's, that's sort of tier one. And I think, you know, if you're still looking at basketball, like Tim Duncan is a rookie that year. So his, his red and greens are pretty that, you know, you guys got, got guys like Shaq and Steve Nash, Charles Barkley in those sets. Not that they're necessarily iconic, but I think the Jordan and Kobe, maybe the Tim Duncan. I mean, if you're looking at football, you know, the, the rice green is the, has the high, two highest sales of all time for a green. So it was 150 and 99. Um, and then the Barry probably, if it was, if it was put on the open market today, you know, might surpass that. It hasn't been sold since December 2020 or maybe around 50, 60 grand. That might surpass it. So you're probably looking at Rice and Sanders. They, they seem to have their own, their own tier there. And then you move into a little bit of the 98, where I think the backgrounds play a big role. Like I think about the Derek Jeter 98. And as much as mm. I hate the Yankees, he's in front of the Statue of Liberty. He's making an off-balance throw. He's a career Yankee. I mean, if you're talking about Jeter's best cards, that's got to be in there, you know. And, and Barry Bonds, Ken Griffey, they're in the sets. Rice and then Man- Manning, Moss, their rookies are in there. So I think you you can make a, a good argument for a lot of these Hall of Fame players who had their rookie years there or were in their primes there. Um, but at the end of the day, Jordan and Kobe sort of lead the charge, I think. But yeah, there's there's a lot that will I think have an enduring legacy and um, desirability in the eyes of of PMG collectors. One thing we haven't done enough on this show is talk and you brought them up and I just want to like side, side tangent here is talk a little bit about Barry Sanders. It's Barry Sanders influence on sports card collectors. It might not punch you in the face, but if you're in the conversations and you're in the collections and you're meeting people every day, you know how much Barry Sanders means to football card collectors. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently and especially as his cards pop up and it just see, he's one of those guys that seems like whenever one of his rare card is available, the price that it sells for keeps going up. It just, it that's just how, how it makes me, it's like what I think of. And so I think about Barry Sanders and I think, you know, his team sucked, but he was incredible. And you compare him with like an Emmett Smith who Emmett Smith, you know, all time rushing leader won three Super Bowls and the, in the hearts and minds of just the, the, the hobby as a whole in the football card community, it just seems like Barry Sanders is on like several levels above Emmett Smith, where when people talk and communicate about why certain players are more valuable than others, they bring in the on the field accolades and they want to tie championships to that. And so, I don't know. I just find that very interesting. Is that something that you've thought about just from a Barry Sanders perspective before? Yeah, for sure. Like you point out, I mean, the Lions were a horrible team in the 90s. Um, And then his fan base is is so large. I I think it has the contrast between him and Emmett or like, you know, on many levels below him, like a Frank Gore is like those guys achieve their numbers and their accolades mostly due to longevity. Um, not that they weren't amazing in their primes, but like Sanders only played 10 years and he had averaged like over 1,500 yards a year. He had, I think, six first-team All-Pro nods in 10 years. I mean, he was just utterly transcendent. And then he retired in his prime. You just 
like for whatever reason, poor lions, Calvin Johnson and Barry Sanders, like the two guys that just retired. Great collector bases. Yeah. Great collector bases because they never, like I look at Julio Jones, right? Like if he had retired four years ago, we, he might, he might be different to collectors because he would have retired at the end of his prime instead of us watching him sort of like limp through like multiple teams per year, you know? Um, so the the Sanders thing has fascinated me because you look at some of these other Hall of Fame running backs like Marshall Falk, your old Colts buddy, uh, you know Jerome Pettis, Curtis Martin, and their their prices relative to Sanders are just you know microscopic. And even though they're all Hall of Famers and they're right behind them on the rushing list, it's just the legacy has such an influence, um, you know, on our perception of a guy in the hobby similar to rice, you know? And so I think that's, I guess that's what guides people. I've never quite understood it, but when you watch his highlights, you start to kind of feel it, you know? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to let out the, the cat out of the bag for you, but I've done a lot of uh, looking at the stats and just values of players. And I'm not sure you could find a more bargain bin value of a incredible football player than Curtis Martin, just like yeah. his, his career was insane, but like, yeah, his cards don't necessarily match the prices of it. And I know you probably spend a little time on Curtis Martin, but it's, it's fun when you can find those areas that you have passion for. And you're, it feels like almost like you're stealing something from the hobby. Yeah, for sure. I, I think just to put that in, in perspective about the 1997 rubies, I think a Barry Sanders, I might be wrong. I think it sold for like $36,000 and I got a Curtis Martin not long ago for 600 bucks. So it's like, is that, is it really like, is he really a, a you know, 600th of the price? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, he's, he's definitely a bargain bin. Don't, don't let it out. Yeah. Like, we won't, we won't yeah, tell anybody. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So let's get to the um, portion of the show that might not be as fun as just talking about the aesthetics and the players, but just like the fraud that seems to be appearing with PMGs and just like 90 stuff in general. So I think, just in the the last episode we had, we talked about just like how this might not be uh, something that is new, but it's just like we're becoming more and more aware of it. And I know there has been just a lot of green PMGs that have been called into question that are in primarily Beckett slabs that are being sold on PWCC. And it's like people, people, collectors that are coming in new and maybe you a year or two years ago, you might not have you you got to that level where you're like I'm not I'm not collecting the ultra modern stuff anymore. I want to collect the uh, these cool 90s parallels. I love Curtis Martin. Oh my god, there's this green PMG and you shouldn't even have to think twice about that, especially if it's authenticated, especially if it's being sold at a major auction. I shouldn't have to like call into question like its legitimacy, but like here we are today and we're calling into question the legitimacy of some of these cards. So Maybe I first like maybe just start with like how like you started to observe some of these uh listings and like like doing some detective work, like talk a little bit about that process. Well, the thing that kind of tipped me off was just the frequency with which the greens were selling. You know, with with reds and having 135 copies in football, it's it's normal to see them regularly. But with greens, there's supposed to be this exclusivity where a card doesn't surface for, you know, multiple years because there's 15 of them. But first I started noticing the ones that are slabbed by Beckett 
and labeled authentic altered mm-hmm. missing missing serial number. So those are coming from backdoor sheets as well, but not being stamped. So you're getting the you know you're getting the same same card um, just without a serial number. So the, the aesthetics exactly the same. They're not they're not fakes. They're just they're backdoor extras that were put up during the bankruptcy sale. So once you started seeing those, I think it was in the spring, it started to be like, why are there so many? Right. And then I just, I started reading up on fakes in basketball. I don't, I'm not a basketball collector, but you know, the rampancy of fakes in basketball is far more than baseball and football. And that, and that goes to other parallels as well, like platinum medallion rubies. Fortunately, we don't have to deal with in football and baseball. But once I started looking at into it and realizing that for the greens and reds, the serials are to blame, right? It's not a ground up fake, meaning there's not some guy counterfeiting it and trying to get all the details right. It's a legitimate card that's been stamped aftermarket. I started trying to figure out how to detect, you know, what's a fake serial and what's not. And that kind of led me down the path of realizing, wow, there's a lot of them that are being sold by major auction houses every week and on their premier auctions or their monthly Alita. And so that was kind of what inspired me to start making posts or story posts about it, I guess. What And now what can we look out for in terms of the serial numbering that allow us to identify that these are cards that we should not be bidding on and we should throw up some sort of red flag? The way I think of it, it's like there's um, there's optical illusion pictures you see where it's like, is there a young woman turning her head or an old witch with a big nose? You know, <laughs> like once you see the old witch, you can't unsee it. And it's sort of like once you see the indicia of a fake, you can't unsee it. Um, so I can just glance at it and know that it's fake because every digit zero through nine on the fake is different from mm-hmm. the real zero through nine. They're very crude. I mean, it, it's... It's not, it's, it's in some instances, it's the width of the, the number or the spacing between them. But I mean, if I were to show you like the, to a seven, for instance, um, on a, on a, on a real one, there's a little hook going south on the top of the seven and on the fake one, there's not. And it just immediately tell you if there's a seven, boom, that's easy. The thing with the greens is they all have a zero because they're zero, zero, one through zero, one, five. So the zero is an easy way to tell whether, um, it's fake or not. And the only reason I, I know that I'm right is because I've reported, I don't know, maybe 12 to 15 to PSA who has deactivated every serve that I've reported and confirmed it. So I feel comfortable at this point being able to know, okay, they're validating what I'm seeing. And, you know, there's other users I've run them by and they've agreed. And so it's, it's gotten me to the place where I feel confident pointing them out. And don't, I don't feel at this point that I'm, jeopardizing or compromising a potential deal for somebody. And really, I don't feel bad for big auction houses if they lose a sale because of it, you know, like that's not, that's not my, my, my foremost concern. Yeah. You you won't find, find me uh, crying over that either. Um, Is the, is, do you think, and this might be a little tinfoil hat speculation, but do you think that the culprit of this is an individual or a, group of individuals with 
uncut sheets, cutting the sheets, serial name, serial stamp, and then just knowing that they can get it bypassed like uh, a grading company like Beckett? Yes, um, there are, you know, if you look at, uh, there are pockets in time where a lot are submitted at one time, which tells mm-hmm. me probably coming from similar sheets. And, you know, not only are the auction houses selling these, they're selling the uncut sheets. And so like you go to Heritage and Golden, they're they're making them readily available. So and it's not just Joe Schmo like you and me. It's, you know, these things cost twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars. So you have to have the capital to be able to buy it. You have to have the time to cut them enough to where it's not going to be detected. You have to have some kind of stamping machine, however crude it may be, you have to have some mechanism by which to stamp in volume. And then, you know, you need to have the experience to know that you can submit them to Beckett and Beckett will grade them. Beckett will pass it. You know, it gets passed on to the auction house. Everybody's just pointing to the guy before saying it's his fault. You know, like it's just it's like like ever since I started posting about these PWCC ones, which is the biggest offender, they've now added a disclaimer to their listings that says this uh, this certification is active in the Beckett uh, registry as of X date to basically say, well, it, it looks real to us, you know, like if I'm like some schmuck sitting at home and I can tell a fake on my computer, like they should have somebody working there that can just look through these like a layer of additional scrutiny that's, you know, that's going to prevent these from coming to market. Totally. And uh, when I was talking with Jake on last week's show, he mentioned how, you know, Spinatron, who's a big collector of the credentials, bought a sheet to get it off of the market so that this wasn't going to happen. So it just seems like, and maybe, hell, I'll use my platform here because I know there's so many people who give a shit who are like like you who are posting on Instagram and trying to bring awareness that like, I don't know, like maybe we shouldn't be fucking selling sheets of these cards at auction houses anymore because chances are the people who are getting them are chopping them up and trying to not only, you know, they're just trying to, they're greedy and they're trying to take advantage of collectors who just want to spend money on these cards. I don't know. It just seems like something we could do a better job on. I agree with you. Now, I I know that there is a segment of the hobby that enjoys displaying uncut sheets. I have a buddy, Colorado collector. He likes to buy like uncut baseball sheets and display them. And um, I get that. I think that's totally cool because, you know, he's a trustworthy individual. But if you're an auction house, you can't guarantee that these won't end up in the hands of someone who has nefarious motives, you know, to cut them up. And so, like, if you have if you're an owner of an uncut sheet and you want to sell it to somebody on the private market and you know they're not going to do anything with it, more power to you. But my position is for auction houses it's better to deprive the sheet collectors of their sheets than it is to potentially deceive unsuspecting collectors. Right. The great way to put it, let's maybe close it out with this. It seems to me that PMGs aren't going anywhere. They're going to maybe continue to be in the hearts and minds of collectors until forever. That's kind of how I look at it. But what do you think about just like the uh, long-term outlook of PMGs? Like you think more people are going to come in enjoy them you think they're one of the 
most strongest, greatest parallels? Like how, how do you look at PMG's long-term? Yeah, I mean, all-time parallels, I think, you know, no matter who you ask, it's firmly in the top five. As far as the 90s go, it's probably number one, maybe Essential Credentials and Ruby's behind it. You look at it, and there's only three years of three iterations. Of course, you have Fleer Retro stuff in 2012, 2013, and then they got the modern stuff that they're bringing back through Upper Deck with the non-licensed stuff. But those products are so far removed from the late 90s and the you know the composition of the checklist is completely different um and and putting if you have a guy in those sets who's let's say not mike jordan you can put together a run obviously the one of ones are difficult to attain but like it's a three or four card run and there's something really nice about displaying a run of those guys next to each other i have the blood so run and it looks really good you know next to each other um and so i think that the fact that they're not attainable, the desirability, it should endure, even though the introduction of so many fakes has maybe diluted the red green market a little bit. But maybe, maybe that subsides in the future. I don't know. I see it every month because there's there's a lot of fakes and the unstamped ones are going around. But I don't know. If we're spending four or five figures on a card, you know, like I said, we want to feel comfortable where it's going. Um, and I think long term, you're going to be okay. These cards will disappear as we as we age and we get further removed from the nineties, we're only what, 25 years out. So imagine what's going to be like in, in 10 to 15 years when most of these are locked up in collections. So if you're into PMGs, I think you can feel pretty good about it. Zano 23 sports cards on Instagram. Zan, this was awesome. Really appreciate you making some time and digging in on the, on PMGs with me. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed that chat with Zan. You can find him, Zanu23 Sports Cards, on the Instagram machine. I love talking parallels. I love talking with other collectors. You can expect many more episodes to come. Thank you for listening. Take care of your friends. Take care of others around you. Collect some damn sports cards. We'll be back next week.